and welcome to episode 1662 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Spring training games have started, and I'm not a huge spring training action person. I'm one of the people who's like happy for a day or two that it's back and you get to see some highlights and then you kind of get bored again and wonder when opening day is. That's me. Others are not that way. Others really enjoy the spring training baseball and I'm happy for them. And it's nice to have on as background, at least. Is that where you are with it? I'm delighted, Ben. Yeah? Uh (laughs) I mean, I don't think that my delight will last all the way to opening day. I expect that even after, um, you know, the winter and the strangeness of last year, that my sort of appetite for spring training will only be slightly uh, extended. But Mm -hmm. it's just, it's so nice. I I felt fortunate because, you know, I watched, as I I think I've said before, I watched a fair bit more winter ball than I have in previous years. So I I did not feel baseball deprived in the way that I maybe have historically. Uh, But there's something about having it on during the day while I'm working Mm -hmm. that's just the best. So, Yeah. yeah. I don't want to downplay the delight of having it back. It's yeah. just the the actual following the games. <laughs> you know, I used to do that like when I was a fan, like if the game was broadcast, then I would actually tune in the way I would for a regular season game. That's how eager I was for baseball to be back. And it's not that I'm not eager now, but I don't know. I'm old and jaded, I guess, in my <laughs> appetite for watching the 39th guy on the 40-man roster or the parade of minor league invites, et cetera, once the, the starters get pulled. I'm not locked into every pitch, let's say, but I feel the exuberance when it does come back. There's definitely a, an exhilaration to, oh, okay, it's back. It's it's better than pitchers and catchers reporting, where it's like, okay, this is a milestone. It's nice. It's getting us closer to the season, but nothing is actually happening. There is actual baseball on TV in some cases or on the radio, or you can follow it, and it's nice to have it back. And you just get to see some people that you've missed, You know, your favorite characters from our favorite TV show baseball <laughs> and one of those characters is Jeff Mathis who uh who batted cleanup on Tuesday. And that's kind of <laughs> what I'm talking about when it comes to spring training. You get to see some weird, wild, wacky stuff. You also get to see like Fernando Tatis hit a giant home run, and that's really fun. But you also get to see Jeff Mathis bat cleanup. And I was curious, of course, how close this has come to happening in an actual game that counts. And it has never happened, unsurprisingly. Jeff Mathis has never batted cleanup in a regulation major league game. I wanted to see how close he had come because if there was ever a a bottom of the order hitter, it's Jeff Mathis. But he once batted fifth. He once uh, started a game in the fifth spot. I should say he has hit in the cleanup spot, but he didn't start in the cleanup spot. However, he did one time start (laughs) fifth in the lineup. And (laughs) I was curious about what circumstances could possibly lead to Jeff Mathis batting fifth. Because like on Tuesday, he's in the Philly spring training lineup and I looked at the box score and I had to like click on a few of the names hitting after him to see what their first names were. So that was the caliber of player. And as we talked about with Matt Gelb, Mathis probably won't make this team. You know, he's just trying to get some playing time, get seen. But in the game when it happened, it was 2012 
Mathis was on the Blue Jays September 19th against the Yankees. Now, part of it was that Mathis was having a career year. He batted 218 that year with a 68 WRC+, the best he's ever had. This is a 194 career hitter with a career 46 WRC+. So 218-68, not great, but, you know, this was his first year in Toronto, and he was at his best with the bat. I think he was filling in for J.P. Arncibia, who was hurt at times. So the hitters who were behind Mathis in the lineup that day, which is really the ultimate indignity, Moises Sierra, so not a, a name brand hitter, 45-year-old Omar Vizquel, <laughs> oh, geez. rookie Adani Echevarria, and rookie Anthony Ghost. So <laughs> it was not as if there was necessarily a much better hitter hitting behind Mathis that day. So it's almost defensible. Like, I don't know who was uh, available or not available that day. And the 2012 Blue Jays were not a good hitting team. They were like uh, fourth from worst in WRC+, plus, I think. So the circumstances conspired. And Andy Pettit was pitching for the Yankees. So lefty-righty. And I think I would guess that this was also a small sample matchup thing because Jeff Mathis against Andy Pettit through the start of that season, he had faced him 12 times and he'd hit 364, 417, 455. So probably they figured Jeff Mathis really has Andy Pettit's number. So we'll put him in the the fifth spot there. That's how it happened. How did he do on that particular evening? (laughs) He went over three with a strikeout. (laughs) And he got pinch hit for eventually, (laughs) which is appropriate. (laughs) Sorry, Jeff Mathis. So that was his day in the sun. I was just kind of curious. I looked to see if I could find an explanation for exactly how it happened and I didn't see, but I did search Twitter just to see what people were saying that day about this, if anything. I just searched for Jeff Mathis batting fifth and I found Jeff Mathis is batting fifth. This is not a typo. I found Jeff Mathis batting fifth in the Jays lineup. Never, ever, 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 ever again, please. Then Jeff Mathis batting fifth, hashtag LOL, hashtag yikes. Why Jeff Mathis batting fifth for the Blue Jays? He has like a career 11 slugging percentage. It goes on. So people paid attention. They noticed that this was weird. Maybe that's the reason they haven't wanted to broadcast their games. <laughs> yeah, it could be. They're like, yeah. oh, we we are we're gonna get up to some foolishness. <laughs> We'd rather fewer people see it. <laughs> yeah, this was a long time ago. It's the Phillies who who do this sort of thing now. And Mathis went one for three in his uh, cleanup audition on Tuesday. And I saw MLB's Corey Schwartz actually chimed in on Twitter and said that Jeff Mathis's career spring training stats as the cleanup hitter five for eight with two homers and a 927 OPS heading into Tuesday. So again, proven cleanup performer in spring training. He just really had a two WRC plus in 2019. <laughs> two, Ben, two. Boy, he must be really good at defense. He is. I know he is, but wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're doing a season preview pod today. We will be talking in a few moments to Fabian Ardaya, who covers the Angels for The Athletic. And then after that, we'll be talking to Lynn Worthy of the Kansas City Star about the Royals. Anything else you want to get into before we get to them? 
I suppose that we should talk a little bit about the latest reporting that The Athletic has done around Mickey Calloway, who, as of this moment, is still suspended but employed by the Los Angeles Angels. And the story that came out today focused less on, you know, the more recent bad behavior that was originally outlined by Brick Rowley and, and Katie Strang, but more on what had gone on in Cleveland and what the Cleveland front office was aware of and when and paints just a a terrible picture of of Callaway's behavior in the workplace toward co-workers toward the wives and girlfriends of players toward fans in the stands mm-hmm. and does not paint a picture of members of that front office as either being particularly truthful when they were initially asked what they knew or whether they were aware of Callaway's harassment when the initial story was reported and their ability to sort of curtail that behavior or try to intervene on it in any kind of a meaningful way while he was still a member of the Cleveland organization. So it's another day of a really discouraging story about how women sort of as a a broad group are treated within the sport. And I think particularly concerning because the people who are theoretically responsible for, you know, making sure that behavior like that doesn't continue to propagate itself within the game are the people who are in charge, right? They're still in leadership positions. um, Mm -hmm. And they you know, weren't especially truthful about what they knew and when. It also makes the delay in his firing, and and we talk about this a bit in our team preview, but just seemed really baffling because it's clear in the story that the league was also aware that there had been some incidents involving Callaway during his tenure in Cleveland. So I don't really understand what possible exculpatory evidence they could be in the process of trying to gather. I think that as we'll talk about, it's it's more an issue of not wanting to end up on the wrong end of a lawsuit. But yeah, just a story that continues to be bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The reporting makes it sound like, I mean, if there was a woman in Mickey Calloway's vicinity anywhere, yeah. <laughs> he was going to harass her, basically. It's like yeah. that level of serial offense and not even necessarily in the vicinity. If he had her number, if he had her email yeah. address, if there was any kind of contact at all, it just sounds like something that people must have known about it. It makes it pretty clear that people did know about it, players, people in the organization, and not just women. Everyone was aware of it, seemingly. And yeah, Chris Antonetti, the president of baseball operations for Cleveland, had quite categorically denied that he was aware of anything or that there had been any reports or complaints of any kind. And the story does seem to make it pretty clear that there had been at least one complaint that came to their attention about an affair that Callaway had had and the woman's husband had been contacting the team and they talked to Callaway about it. And that's maybe a little bit different from some of the other things that are documented here in that it was consensual and not connected to the team. But it's just a a pattern that... It seems like if you had bothered to ask anyone he worked with, really, who was not his uh, good buddy or, or had some reason to protect him, 
they might have been able to tell you if they felt empowered to do that. So it, it seems like no one asked or no one wanted to know or people put it out of their minds because he was apparently a pretty good pitching coach, at least according to some. Right. I There's a, a piece of this uh, reporting that details sort of his behavior while he was with the Mets. And I'm quoting here, according to one former Mets employee, Callaway earned a nickname among several people within the organization, Dick Pick Mick. Yes, saw that trending earlier. <sighs> yeah, because we live in hell. So <laughs> so it sort of defies belief that, that people were not aware of this um, on a pretty broad level. And if they weren't, they probably ought to have been. Um, and I guess the one thing I'll say here, and, you know, we sometimes get... Uh, <laughs> chided for you know shaking our fingers at folks but if you're at the point in in a workplace where that nickname is being bestowed to a coworker, you know it's time to say something to someone who can do something about it it's long past that time <laughs> candidly mm-hmm. if you're at that the stage of nicknames and they are nicknames like that it's time to pipe up, and I think that you're right. Like it, it is clear that the people who were on the receiving end of this either were ignored or didn't feel sufficiently empowered to continue to escalate this behavior. Although, as we know from Britt and Katie's earlier reporting, several women did come forward in a concentrated way to try to sort of raise the alarm. But the people who are on the receiving end of harassment can't deal with that harassment on their own. They need other people to help hold their coworkers and, and colleagues to account. So it's not a that's not a baseball specific issue. That's a, a cultural issue. And I think that if one of our priorities is making sure that people feel respected and safe at work, that needs to be a responsibility that's held broadly because the people who are in a position to be harassed can't do it alone. So that's right. all. Yeah, so we'll ask Fabian about the future of Callaway with the Angels and the ongoing investigation, which is still ongoing for (sighs) some reason. (laughs) So we also learned on Tuesday that the AAA season is going to be pushed back a bit, right? Just by a month for now, it sounds like. So to May, apparently. Yeah, Jeff Passon reported that. And I I think that this was, if you talk to prospect folks, this was sort of the expectation, right? That um, given, especially given the delays uh, in spring camp, right, that they don't want minor leaguers to come in while there are still major leaguers there because they're really keen on um, sort of limiting potential COVID exposure and not delaying any major league games. Um, And when you couple that with the fact that it sounds like there will be alternate sites again this year, it's not surprising that the season got pushed back, but it was made official today. I'll be interested to see what this sort of more broadly means for the existence of stuff like Fall League, because we we already knew that the minor league season was expected to go deeper into September than it typically does, but I wonder if that means that we won't end up with fall ball in Arizona as a result of this, but we, yeah. I guess we will see. So there's still a possibility that there might be a full minor league season, that they might complete it just by playing later than they would have, or they were already planning to play later? I think they were already planning to play later. I don't know what this means for the sort of total number of games that they will be able to stage in the course of a season, but it seems like it'll be relatively complete. I don't think this will be anything quite like the season we had last year in terms of its potential effect on development. So that's Mm -hmm. something. Yeah, I see now that J.J. Cooper said that it's expected to be a 120-game season compared to the typical 140 or so. So that's not bad, and maybe that allows time for players to get vaccinated before the 
the season starts, which would help them actually complete it and be safe for everyone. So that would be good too. And of course, it would give fans time to get vaccinated too and hopefully be able to come to the park safely, which would be pretty important for the financial viability of minor league baseball. Yeah, we should say, like, it sounds like there is some good news on that front. And what a lovely thing that is, because Mm -hmm. there are some states where they are very keen to reopen. So I hope everyone is able to get vaccinated very, very quickly. Yes. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) I started in this happy place. And then by the end of it, I was thinking about Texas. And so it it took a turn. (laughs) It's okay. You can be happy at the end of a sentence as well as at the start of a sentence. We can do it. I know we can. Yeah. There you go. And that relates to Rangers van attendance, right? I should say, um, yes, so there there was a, apparently the, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, decided to roll back the statewide mask mandate today and is keen to reopen at 100% capacity everywhere, which could end up meaning both fans in the stands in Arlington sooner than expected and at, at, in much greater numbers, which I'm sure that the, the Rangers will continue to have some kind of safety protocol in place, regardless of what the state allows. But I just, I don't know, in my observation, when there isn't that mandate, the people who end up bearing the brunt for it are, you know, they're like the bag person at the grocery store and the like, you know, stock reshelfer at Target. And without a mandate, people just feel emboldened to not wear a mask at all. And the the people who end up on the, uh, you know, sort of bearing the risk of their not being masked aren't in a great position to push back on it. So it's uh, it's unnerving. I hope that the Rangers will think very carefully about what this means for their attendance. I know that everyone is keen to have fans back in the stands, but despite good vaccine news, we're, we're still in a pandemic. Yeah, because most of the previous teams that had announced some attendance, it was partial, right? It was some low percentage, like the Marlins, maybe other teams had talked about 20% or, or right. even smaller numbers. So, And we should say, I don't believe that the, the Rangers have made a determination on capacity. Right. And, I, and I don't mean to single them out. I just haven't heard anything one way or the other about what um, the Astros' response to this will be. So I, I don't mean to say that they're the only, either the only team at all or the only team in Texas that is contemplating having more fans in the stands. But it was a thing that they, uh, I think, applauded the governor on in terms of the part of his decision that related to trying to get the state open again. So I just hope that everyone can stay safe until we're all vaccinated and then we can have a society again. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be nice. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing I meant to mention, we're going to talk about the Angels and the Royals. There's a former Angels and Royals player who made a little bit of news, Zach Greinke, and that's another always enjoyable rite of spring when Zach Greinke shows up or does not show up because sometimes he'll he'll show up on like the last possible day, which is uh, kind of fun because, uh, you know, if it's not mandatory and you're a veteran and you know what you're doing, you don't have to show up on the very first optional reporting day. That's eyewash, really. So what was it? last year when he showed up at like the last possible day and he was like if I'd known I could have done this before I would have and then there was the time when he like parked his truck like right next to the field or whatever it was there's always uh, there's always something that he does to entertain us or something he says and he said something that uh, I saw a tweet about. He said, the only milestone I pay attention to is I wanted to get 10 home runs and 10 stolen bases, and I got traded to the American League, which made it way harder for that to happen. Then I got caught stealing for the first time ever when I was in Houston because I wanted to steal so bad, which 
I was not even aware of. I didn't know the stakes when he went for that steal. So he is stuck at nine career stolen bases and nine career home runs. And as far as I can tell from play indexing, like since the start of the modern stolen base rules, there are only five players who have nine and nine, five pitchers, that is. And I'm not counting like Babe Ruth and and Shohei Otani, but the only primary pitchers who have at least nine of each are Granke at nine and nine, and then Cy Young at 10 homers, 12 steals, Claude Hendricks at 14 homers, nine steals, and Walter Johnson, 24 homers, 13 steals, and Bob Gibson, 24 homers, 13 steals. So the the 10 and 10 club, which is not something you usually hear about, we usually talk about 30-30 and 40-40, and that's a single season. And here we're talking about 10 and 10 career, which just goes to show you that, you know, pitchers are pretty bad at this whole hitting thing, really. But if I were Greggy, I would want to do that too. Like he's always yeah. taken a lot of pride in his hitting. And hey, if he can be a, a threat on the bases too when he is on the bases when that rarely happens. So the the ten ten club is really just three guys and three total legends, Bob Gibson, Walter Johnson, Cy Young. So I, I kind of want him to do this. Like I'm definitely a pro universal DH guy, but there's a part of me that wants Zach Greinke to get to 10-10. And I don't know how that could happen. I guess if there is no DH in the NL this year and there's some interleague play, then it's possible, yeah. right? So that's something to watch. Of course, the the homer is tough. I mean, if he gets on base, they should just let him have the bag. I agree. Uh, you know, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> make him feel like he earned it, but, you yeah. know, give it to him. Yeah. The homer, that's tougher. Like, right. if, if the situation allows it, yeah, serve up a meatball. See if he could get to 10 and 10. I think that would be fun. He hit three home runs in 2019. Yeah. He, man- he managed that. He hit three. Maybe the Astros will be really, really terrible unexpectedly. And then he's, you know, he's in the last year of his contract. So maybe they True. will trade him to a National League team and then he will have even greater opportunity to to reach that milestone. It could be true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no one else is ever going to have a chance to get there, right? Because yeah. we're going to have Universal DH very soon. So yeah. Granky could be the last into that club. And that'd be a nice little fun fact just to convey that he's an all-around athlete because like that will be part of the narrative about Granky's career and his Hall of Fame case is, is that he was an all-around good player. And by pitcher standards, he hit very well, and he's a much better hitter than his former teammate, Jeff Mathis. Sorry, Jeff Mathis, we're picking on you a lot today. But Granky has a 60 WRC plus compared to Mathis's 46, and he's also a, a great fielder. So, like, you know, his pitching performance alone is quite good. But when you add all the other things that made him such a, a well-rounded, valuable player then maybe that pushes him over the edge if he's not there already. So, yeah, give him that steal. Give him that homer. I'm pulling for you, Zach. Could be true. Can I Can I say something? Sure. Can I return to Texas for a brief moment? Mm-hmm. Just because it, it seems like I should make sure that we have the, the Rangers statement on the record. So they said, this is from a piece by Evan Grant in the Dallas Morning News. We are encouraged by Governor Abbott's announcement today, and we will be reviewing his executive order for full details. Rangers Chief Operating Officer and President of Baseball Operations, Neil Liebman, said in an email Tuesday, in the coming days, we will work through the necessary operational logistics to put the required protocols and 
health measures in place. We look forward to responsibly welcoming fans to a Rangers game at Globe Life Field for the first time at the start of the 2021 season. Our new home was well received on the national stage as a National League playoffs and World Series venue last year, and we are excited for Rangers fans to experience all that Globe Life Field has to offer. Yeah. So, what does it have to offer? It didn't look like that much <laughs> when I watched it, but I don't maybe know. that's unfair. I mean, I think that in watching some amateur baseball, uh, they, there have been a lot of, of, of fans in there of late, Ben. So mm-hmm. it offers an opportunity to recreate that experience on the pro level. It, it offers a baseball team that we currently project to have a 1.5% chance of making the postseason. So mm. it has that, although even a very good baseball team I would I would um, hazard to say is not worth catching COVID over. But yeah, that's the statement from the team, which, you know, for for the record, felt like it, it should be read into the record so that they're not sitting out there going, you know, like Yosemite Sam guns, like, we're open because <laughs> right. that I don't want to lend that impression because uh, that would be irresponsible of me. <laughs> well, while we're reading team statements about sensitive subjects, I guess I might as well read Cleveland's statement uh, about the Mickey Calway report, too. I had forgotten about this. <laughs> Our organization continues to actively cooperate with MLB on their investigation into Mickey Calway. It is important we honor the confidentiality and integrity of that investigation, while we don't believe the reporting to date reflects who we are as an organization. We will not comment further on the specifics of the matter. We remain committed to creating an inclusive work environment where everyone, regardless of gender, can feel safe and comfortable at all times. We will let our actions, not just our words, reflect our commitment. Right, because if you went solely by their words, you would have to take away the implication that they either don't believe the women or don't believe the reporting was done in an effective or accurate way. Maybe we should just have a, a separate segment of the podcast where we just group all of the <sighs> PR statements about various scandals and and depressing stories. Just put them all in one place. We'll just, you know, do the fun banter and then hey, tune into the end if you want to <laughs> just listen to the the carefully couched PR language that the the team's press department put out. I'm tempted to like put them on the 2080 scale, but if every statement is a 20, does that scale have any meaning? Who's to say? <laughs> right. All right. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with Fabian Ardaya to talk about the angels. And yes, there will be some more Mickey Calloway, but there will also be Mike Trout and Shohei Otani and other exciting players. We will be right back. All right, it is time to talk about the Angels and what fortuitous timing it is. We are joined now by Fabian Ardaya, who covers the Angels for The Athletic. Hello, Fabian. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I was planning to lead with an extended discussion slash therapy session about Shohei Otani, and don't worry, we will get there. But let's start with the news of the day. A few of your colleagues at The Athletic published a piece on Tuesday in which they continued their excellent reporting on Mickey Calloway's history of harassment. But as we speak on Tuesday afternoon, Calloway is still officially listed as the Angels pitching coach. And I understand the idea of doing an investigation, but it's been more than a month now since that investigation started and doesn't seem as if there's any great shortage of damning evidence. So what's the holdup here? 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like they've Angels have been wanting to hold off uh, pending investigation and it's an investigation that that Major League Baseball is conducting uh, just to try to clear themselves legally. But uh, I mean, you you said it. It sounds like there's like enough. There's been plenty of information that we've been able to glean from some of the great reporting uh, from Katie Strang, Britt Gorelli, and uh, Ken Rosenthal at the Athletic just about this history. It's a pattern history. It appears. Uh, that Mickey Callaway has had with reporters, with members of the front office, with players' wives and girlfriends, other people, uh, just of inappropriate behavior in the workplace. And this is stuff that I know it's been, like you said, it's been pretty much a month at this point that we've been waiting for this investigation. I know it's been a different case, but I mean, this uh, investigation has taken about as long as Jared Porter was the GM for the Mets before he was let go. Uh, so this is something that we've been waiting on. In the meantime, uh, the Angels have pretty much had just a pitching coach by committee at this point because the interim pitching coach, Matt Wise, contracted COVID-19 uh, when he arrived at spring training camp. So he's been able to be involved on Zoom calls and stuff like that. And it sounds like by the end of this week, he's going to be able to be actually back in person in camp. But the person who's been mainly in person for them has been Dom Chidi, who's an, who is a special assistant who came over from Atlanta with new GM Perry Manassian. I know that you spoke with Joe Madden during his availability today on Tuesday as we're recording this, but for the folks who haven't had a chance to read your piece, did he give you any indication of when the investigation might conclude? No, we still don't really have an idea of how long this investigation is going to take. Uh, Joe Madden and Perry Manassian have both declined comment whenever they've been asked about it. And it sounds like it's still something that's going on on through Major League Baseball primarily. And it sounds like they're waiting until then to make a decision, despite some of the evidence that's continued to come out, uh, primarily because Callaway has denied the allegations both to the Athletic and to the Angels on multiple occasions. Right. And so there was some suggestion that they couldn't fire him for cause because he denied all of this wrongdoing and that just for legal reasons, they had to go through with this investigation. But do you know of something that is actually preventing them from just firing him the way that you could fire any coach just because you don't like his pitching coaching? I mean, in those cases, you, I guess, have to pay the guy if he's under contract and maybe they're trying to get out of doing that or, or trying to protect themselves in some way. But coaches get fired all the time, right? And is there anything preventing them from just cutting ties and then continuing the investigation after that? That I'm not sure. I'm not going to try to pretend to be a lawyer by any means. I do know that, like, obviously that's probably something that they're considering. Like you mentioned, uh, the concept of pay, compensation, whether or not Mickey Callaway, since he has sort of denied the allegations, can sue. He wouldn't be the only former Angels employee to be currently suing the organization or to have been attempting to sue the organization in the last 12 months or so. Right. I, I know the Angels, obviously want this to try to go away but the easiest way for that to probably happen is to be able to move on from him and then continue to move on as an organization try to improve but in the meantime this has been something that's continued to be a point of conversation and we are now two weeks in spring training yeah you have to think that this is more about just covering themselves in the event of some legal eventuality than it is actually waiting to see what the investigation says because there's so much out there already that it just seems like there's no conceivable way that they could keep him so 
at this point, I, I guess, as you said, MLB has taken over this investigation and it's gone beyond the angels. But I wonder if the hiring process for him is something that will come under fire more because a lot of the reporting has focused on what happened when he was in Cleveland, what happened when he was with the Mets, etc. So you kind of have to wonder why did they hire him in the first place if this was out there, if there were so many people they could have talked to who would have told them about this. Yeah, and the hiring process to hire him was pretty quick. I think it was a couple weeks after the Mets let him go that Mickey Callaway said last spring that Joe Madden called him uh, just to reach out and ask if he'd be interested in being the pitching coach. That position got filled relatively quickly after the season. And according to the reporting and the initial story in The Athletic, like that first official day on the job, he was reaching out to one of the old reporters that he had had some inappropriate messages sent to and was had another incident that day where he was talking about how some of the other members of the front office were speaking about her and trying to mention that. And I know that report also included that like as recently as last September, he was sending messages to these women. So it's something that the angels, we don't know if they know about, they've denied knowing about, but it's probably something that considering what we've seen reported is probably something they should have known about uh, as far as like, enhancing their vetting process and stuff like that. Perry Manassian said they're going to take a look at trying to enhance that, but he wouldn't delve into any specifics uh, when he was asked about what that would look like. Well, we'll wait for more information on that as it as it comes out and hopefully as the Angels reach some sort of resolution here. But let's shift our attention to the roster. And I'm going to start, we'll, we'll ask you about the guys who are set to be big contributors to this team and the prospects who might help the Angels um, move the franchise forward in the future. But I want to start with someone who is in his final year with the Angels. It might be in his final year in baseball, Albert Pujols. I know that there was some talk from his wife, I believe, on Instagram that he might be nearing retirement. What is your sense of both what Pujols expects of his own contributions to the Angels this year and then what, if any, future in the game he might have after 2021? Yeah, that was a interesting afternoon, uh, to, say the, <laughs> to say the very least. But yeah, like his wife posted on Instagram something indicating, saying that it's going to be his final season. Then she edited it to say final season under contract with the Angels and then edited it again to try to say like this wasn't meant to be any sort of retirement uh, post it was more just her trying to congratulate her husband on arriving to spring training and it sort of got blown up from there this obviously is albert Pujols' last year under contract with the angels and it, this might be the first time in a while at least since cj crone uh that the angels have really had a at least a short-term solution at first base who's played well enough to supplant him and that's been jared walsh who obviously had a really good september last year uh, still someone the Angels probably feel pretty good about. They have a former first-rounder, Matt Feist, who also probably be in the mix at first base there. And Albert's pretty much been a part-time player for the most part the last couple of years. I think it was 2019. Brad Osmus sat down with him, basically said that the way to keep him fresh was to sort of work in some of these days off. Uh, that expanded a little bit in 2020. And then this year, it seems like everyone's sort of kind of expecting him to sort of come in and be that part-time first-base role for the Angels. Uh, be a guy who maybe can DH on a day when Shohei Otani isn't DHing, or maybe Justin Upton isn't DHing, and maybe faces some more lefties, uh, considering that Jared Walsh is left hand. So there's a pretty easy platoon split there. But it doesn't sound like he's going to be sort of that everyday role that he's been sort of stuck in, even as the production has dipped just in the last couple of years. As far as baseball after this year, I- I'm not really sure where his head's at. He pretty much said 
that when he retires, everyone's going to find out at the same time. It, it's hard to really envision what sort of scenario a team would bring him in next year. It, it'd be tough. I and mean, maybe if there's a universal DH, there's consideration. Maybe he can go back to St. Louis where he started his career. He can maybe go to Kansas City because that's where he went to college, uh, where he spent some of his uh, teenage years. But really, I know mean, he wants to be involved in the game. He's passionate about the game. He has a personal services contract uh, that kicks in. Uh, after he retires with the Angels. So that's something that's going to keep him around the organization, even though he's not going to be playing for them after this year, most likely. So we'll see. Uh, I think some of the writing is on the wall, but we'll have to see how the season plays out. Yeah, I mean, whether or not he is intending for this to be his last season or, you know, officially declaring it, it, it seems hard for me to imagine that it won't be as a player. Of course, I hope that he can stay around the game as long as he wants, but, you know, he's been a replacement level player or worse now for four years at least. And so it just seems like, you know, unless he is willing to uh, take a minor league invite with someone next year, which at his age and considering his career accomplishments, Accomplishment seems somewhat unlikely. I can't really see that happening unless he has some great bounce back year, which would be a lot of fun, but I'm not really expecting it. It's something that we've been talking about for years now, like would he even make it through this contract or would he eventually just not be playable or the Angels might really have someone who could replace him at that position and not even have him finish out the contract or they would come to some mutual agreement. And I guess that is still theoretically a possibility, although at some point if he does declare this is it and he's having a retirement tour and he's getting gifts everywhere he goes and it would be pretty awkward not to have him finish the season with them and you know I I hope that we can celebrate his incredible career and not fixate too much on who he's been lately although that's been hard to overlook at times yeah that's the funny thing with him I know I grew up like I grew up a big Albert Pujols fan like he his peak was when I was sort of growing into loving baseball so that's why watching this part of his career has been interesting and complicated maybe at different points just as far as like someone who enjoys the sport uh, more than any individual fandom at this point but yeah i mean he he's in a position where i don't know i i think some of the stuff that maybe is still driving him to keep playing i know he said he's still passionate still cares about it and you see some of how he has interacted with teammates over the years how he's sort of become a mentor and a sounding board to a mike trout and you can sort of see, like, I mean, he still obviously loves it. And this is something he still cares about. And I think that's something that has motivated him. I think, obviously, seeing out this contract is something that's motivated him. And I think the big thing this year and next year, uh, in all likelihood, if he is going to keep playing, I think there are still some milestones ahead. I know you passed Willie Mays at the end of last year on the all-time home run list. He could pass A-Rod before reaching uh, the 700 home run list. Maybe that's something he wants to keep in mind, but I'm not sure how much that's something that's pressing on his mind right now. Before we ask about the rest of the roster, I wanted to ask about the guy who is putting it together, Perry Manassian, who was hired over the offseason. And that was the result of a long interview process, or at least a, a deep one. I think it was reported that the Angels interviewed 14 <laughs> candidates, something like that, including Jared Porter, I believe, so at least they didn't do that. But why did they ultimately choose him from such a a big potential pool? And how is he different, if you've been able to tell, from Billy Epler? Or or what did they see in him? Yeah, he wasn't necessarily the type of name that you'd really expect to be at the front of some of these GM hire hunts. I mean, he said before the Angels brought him in for an interview that he hadn't interviewed for a general manager job before. He had only been assistant general manager in Atlanta for a couple of years 
uh, where he had had a long-standing relationship with Alex Anthopoulos dating back to their days in Toronto. Um, the thing that really sticks out to me about sort of that process, uh, it sounds like he just really connected uh, in the interview room with Artie Moreno and a lot of like similar baseball philosophies. I know Artie Moreno, he catches a lot of flack and some, most of it, a lot of it's really deserved as far as how he's gone about treating scouts, treating some of the stuff around the ballpark and some of the stuff he did with layoffs over the past summer. But he has spent on this team, he has invested, and he is a self-professed baseball fan. And I think he gravitates towards some of those baseball lifer types. And I think that's what stood out about Perry Manassi. I mean, he literally grew up in a clubhouse. His dad was a clubhouse attendant in Texas. He basically was working in clubhouses from the time he was a kid. Uh, when he was a teenager, he worked under Buck Showalter as a manager's assistant and then started getting into scouting. And from there, sort of invested in some of the new age ideas. He was involved in some of the, that peak uh, for the Blue Jays in the mid-2010s and the last couple of years with the Braves. So I was a little bit surprised that the Angels went first-time GM again, but I think considering the influence that Artie Moreno likes to have in the organization, that's something that makes a lot of sense. And uh, just when you see who Perry is as a person that some of the people around the game have had to say about him. It seems like he's left a good impression on a lot of people in terms of his passion for the game and his intellect and how he connects with people. Yeah, that's something that I've heard from people who were there previously, and I'm sure you have too, about Moreno meddling in baseball decisions. And it's hard to assess from the outside how responsible that is for some of the Angels' struggles. But I know it's something that uh, baseball people and, and people who worked there and might have wanted to work there would mind. So do you know if that reputation was an obstacle in the hiring process? Do you have any idea if Moreno made any promises about, uh, hey, I will not meddle with your decisions anymore? Or is that just something that whoever is running the Angels is just going to have to get used to? I think you saw the I think they said all the right things publicly, uh, at least in the time since. Uh, I know that's something I asked about for sure. Is like going into this GM hiring process, are there things that like above the GM chair that they feel like needs to change, whether it be investing in the minor leagues or how much involvement they have on the day-to-day operations? And it pretty much, John Carpina, who's the president who works underneath uh, Arnie Moreno, basically said like he, Arnie Moreno is the owner. And I think that's something that was pretty telling before the hiring process. And I'm not sure how much of a role that played in what candidates were and weren't willing to sort of put in for the job. I know they had, I think it was four or five finalists, including Jerry Porter, like you mentioned before, who were very interested in that job uh, and who were up for that job. And I think you saw some of the writing on the wall a little bit that last year with Billy Upler too, with the same stuff in mind. I know obviously everyone's going to point to the, uh, the uh, Jock Peterson, Luis Renjifo trade, Ross Stripling mm-hmm. trade that, uh, Artie Moreno pulled out of and still hasn't given a full explanation as to why, but it was uh, Artie Moreno made clear that that was his decision. And I think it's stuff that like over the years, I think we've seen similar cases about stuff like that, where Artie Moreno's wanted to be involved in these sort of decisions. And we saw that with how the Angels pursued Anthony Rendon. I know they were uh, in meetings with Scott Boris talking about Garrett Cole and Artie Moreno at the end pulled up, pulled aside Scott Boris and basically said that he wants to keep it, an eye on Rendon as well. And that's someone that he's really admired as a baseball fan himself. So Artie Moreno has been involved. And I think it sounds like he's going to keep being involved. And it's just a matter of how if that can be a good enough mix for the Angels to finally be good enough. Because they have spent, uh, they haven't quite 
spent to the luxury tax level. They, they haven't quite done that, despite some of the big contracts that he's issued to Mike Trout, Albert Pujols, Anthony Rendon. But he's been involved. He's spent. And it's just a matter of how much that involvement's going to impact the rest of the involvement's going to impact the rest of the roster. One of the areas where they're hoping the the roster will grow, and I'm not going to step on our Shohei Otani question because I would never deny Ben the pleasure of asking you, but <laughs> but one of the spots is in the rotation, right? This is a team that I think the, the constant refrain you hear from fans is that if they would only put a 500 team around Mike Trout, then they'd make the playoffs, but the, the pitching seems to be their downfall year after year. They've tried to address that this year. They added Jose Quintana. They traded for Alex Cobb. What is the state? of the Angels rotation non-Otani division and what are your expectations for it this year? Yeah, I think you guys had it on the podcast a little while ago. Like this was the, this has been the worst position group relative to the rest of the league in a half a decade. And I that's that doesn't happen necessarily by just not signing a Garrett Cole like they did, like they've missed out on doing a couple of years ago. It comes from not from also just completely flopping at some of these picks on these free agents that they've signed to replace them instead. I mean, Matt Harvey obviously did not work out in Anaheim. Trevor Cahill didn't work out. Uh, Julio Tehran really didn't work out last year. Although obviously a shortened season, it's hard to really get, gauge how much that played a role into it. But like they've not only sometimes missed on some of these, but they've missed badly. And I think that's something that the Angels maybe are trying to avoid this winter. I know it's a little bit of a similar pattern of trying to like trade for an Orioles starter and sign a guy to a one-year deal, which is what they did last year. And it worked pretty well with Dylan Buddy. Didn't work so well with Julio Tehran. We'll see what it looks like this year. I know Alex Cobb is someone who the peripheral stats didn't quite like as much as some of the raw numbers uh, like last year. But he said he went to driveline this winter in Seattle. He added a little bit of velocity, cleaned up some things with his mechanics. And it seems like he feels pretty strongly about where his stuff is and if he's your bottom of your rotation type of starter who can stay healthy I think that's gonna be probably an upgrade over where the Angels were at the end of last year sort of requiring Julio Tehran to keep going out there even though he was struggling so much Jose Quintana I know he had the injury last year uh, freak injury cutting his thumb uh, washing the dishes and then uh, had an oblique strain but he's been pretty consistent over the years I think if you compare his one-year deal to maybe some of the other one-year deals they've signed in years past so like a Jesse Chavez, a Tim Lincecum, a Harvey or Cahill, a, the track record recently has been better than those guys have been. So that's probably someone the Angels feel pretty good about. And then Dylan Bundy obviously is coming into his final year uh, before free agency. And he had a breakout year last year, looked really good, throwing a lot more breaking balls. Andrew Keeney is someone they still feel really highly about. And he's coming into his free agent walk year as well. And he is someone who, like, they feel like his fastball, maybe some of his fastball usage or situationally is something they can do better, maybe stop trying to force uh, his fastball inside righties as much, and maybe try to focus more on swings and misses. Uh, and that's something that, in spurts, he's shown an ability to do. Uh, and then there's Griffin Canning, who uh, I've been high on since the Angels drafted him. And in the time since, he's shown himself to be a big league quality, league average starter at the very least when he's been healthy. And he showed he was pretty healthy over the 60-game season last year, and he took some steps forward. I know the ERA didn't necessarily drop too much, but you sort of saw over the course of starts and in-between starts an ability to sort of adapt, and you saw him expanding his arsenal. I know he sort of tweaked his arsenal with off-speed stuff a little bit. He has a little bit of a harder breaking ball now that he's calling his slider, and his slider is more of a cutter now. 
So it's a lot of different looks and it's stuff that you can locate all those pitches and that can make them really dangerous going forward. That's all well and good, but let's talk about the light of my life, although he hasn't been lately. (laughs) Currently listed sixth on the Angels starting rotation depth chart at Roster Resource, but first in my heart, Shohei Otani. (laughs) I I was going to try to have modest expectations for his 2021 season, which seems like a make-or-break one for his hopes of actually being a two-way player in the majors. But you have made that difficult. I have a bone to pick with you. You have gotten me excited again. I can't help it. You wrote about all the things he did over the offseason. You're tweeting about how he's hitting 100 in bullpen sessions. You have ruined me again. So now that you have rekindled my optimism, tell me if that is realistic and tell everyone why there is some reason to hope or what Otani did to try to correct his trajectory from the past couple of years. Ben is ready to get hurt again. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, as someone who just is a baseball fan, I think I am too. Uh, I think it's still like, obviously the big question with him is not necessarily whether or not he can pitch and hit well at the major league level. We saw that for two months in 2018, which I'm sure you look back on fondly, Ben. Ugh, best days of my life. Yeah. So the big thing is like just getting him healthy through an entire season. I think that's something that we haven't really seen. I I know obviously he's had some stuff that was controllable, some stuff that wasn't that played a role in that. I know he had the grade one UCL sprain even before he came to the Angels and then he eventually needed Tommy John surgery. He tried coming back last year, but while he was coming back from Tommy John surgery in 2018, he needed uh, knee surgery to address a bipartite patella in his knee which is a genetic condition. So it's not necessarily like he was, he hurt his knee playing baseball. It just got aggravated a little bit more. And that's something that affected him when he was hitting in 2019. And also he said it affected him a little bit, even as late as last year in terms of his balance. Uh, he tried coming back last year on the mound. And like I said, that knee surgery maybe interrupted uh, some of the patterns of what his normal Tommy John rehab would be uh, the baseball shutdown certainly did that as well. I know they were targeting a May return, May 2020 return for him. And uh, that obviously wasn't able to happen. Uh, and then he came back and it, it sound it seemed like he just didn't have all of it back. It seemed like there was something holding him back last year, even as far as summer camp, the velocity was not quite as great as it had been pre-surgery. Uh, his command wasn't quite all there. And it just didn't seem like he felt right. And then after that second start uh, where he, it, he had like an inning where he flashed some of the old Otani, he got up to like 97 miles an hour through a couple of splitters, got a couple of strikeouts, and then the velocity dropped. So, I mean, he had the forearm strain that shut him down for the year. Now it seems like this winter, he's go- went into this winter just trying to remake some stuff, try to take control of his own career, to use his uh, agent's terms. Uh, so he basically remade his diet. He started getting blood drawn to try to figure out what stuff is right for his diet. He started changing up how he worked out. He went to a couple of different baseball facilities, one of which is driveline, which is probably part of why uh, some of the enthusiasm has been where it has been. He changed how he lifted. He started doing live BPs earlier as a hitter and try, really tried to focus on strengthening his lower half because he felt like uh, given the knee surgery, he wasn't quite able to fully have that strength back. So he felt like he needed to sort of build that back up. So he built back up in that regard. And the biggest thing has been about trying to keep him healthy. So using that data to sort of track where his health is at on a given day 
and try to monitor that. Now, that along with the Angels really trying to let him go in a sense, like let him sort of prove himself, not trying to put any sort of guardrails on where he's at. It sounds like the Angels are going to do a six-man rotation anyway just to build some guys up and monitor workloads after the shortened season. So that's still going to play pretty well for the Angels. But the, the door's not closed on Otani hitting and pitching on the same day. The door's not closed on him maybe hitting the day before or after he pitches, which was something that he didn't do uh, his first time in the big leagues and not something he did back in Japan. So it seems like the possibilities are there and the optimism's there because he's shown sort of more of what he used to be, uh, the velocities back. I know, at least for me, you go to write a story, you hope that the guy at least sort of makes good on what you wrote. And he went out the first two bullpen sessions after I wrote that story, he hit 97 and hit 100. So that, at least for me as a baseball writer, that made me feel <laughs> good. So there's reason for optimism. I think the biggest thing is how long he can sustain this and whether or not some of the changes he's made or stuff that can help build him more for the long run beyond just this year. Yeah. So that's the question. I think how long you think those doors would stay open and I hope they stay open indefinitely, but there are probably other teams that would not have waited this long that would have been trying to push him to specialize by now. And the angels seem to be respecting his wishes there, or maybe they think it is actually the best way to deploy him. Maybe that is why they were able to sign him in the first place that he sensed that they were really committed to this idea, which a lot of people wouldn't have been. But if he struggles again, if he breaks down again, how long is the leash? Do you think his mind would change? Do you think the team's mind would change? Much as I want this to happen and much as I think he has the skills to do it, if he's healthy, if he were to get hurt again, then even I might be thinking, okay, well, it might be the best thing for him in the long run to be a productive either or instead of a broken both, right? So yeah. do you think that this is the year that he has to show that he can do it or else he will have to specialize and if it did come to that, do you have any idea how he would be used? Or, or is there some other way, you know, maybe he's an outfielder and a late inning reliever or something? Can you see this evolving in any way? I think the Angels, obviously, they still have some interest in letting him do both. Uh, Joe Madden has been fascinated by the idea, even dating back to when the Cubs were trying to recruit Otani. Uh, Joe Madden was part of that process and just trying to sort of dream up all the different ways to use him. And that would have been different, obviously, because that would have been the National League without the DH. Do I think this is the last year possibly for Otani? It, there's a chance, honestly, uh, that this could have been the last year for Otani getting a chance to do both if something happens pitching-wise, if he gets hurt again in that regard. And there's sort of caution as far as his long-term pitching future. Just because, I mean, it seems like a lot of the injuries have been on that side of the ball. He hasn't thrown more than 100 innings since 2016. That's going to be something that's going to be really hard to build up when, if you're talking about 2022 at that point where he hasn't, it's been, would have been six years since he's really reached that sort of milestone. Uh, I think we saw a little bit of this last year just to sort of keep, get his feet wet in a sense. Uh, like before games, they would have him sort of take rounders and shag fly balls, worked him at first base, worked him in the outfield without any throwing involved. And I think that's something that's a door that's probably open for the Angels. I, I'm curious to see if, if it doesn't work out. Obviously, wait and see if it works out first. But if it doesn't work out, like what, how they try to use him. Because if they try to use him as a reliever, that's really hard to schedule 
uh, around that sort of thing and what does that do to the DH if he's hitting already in that game and strategically how does that work and then also I'm curious to see I know his experience is in the outfield he hasn't quite played there since I think 2014 but I would imagine that they would be more likely to use him as a hitter as a pitcher than as a pitcher long term just because he has more of a track record more of a sample of being of being a hitter in the big league level at this point just considering some of the arm injuries he's had to deal with so there are a couple of people who would potentially crowd him out of the Angels outfield, but one of them who isn't going to uh, probably start the year, at least on the big league roster, is Joe Adele. What went wrong with Joe Adele, <laughs> in your opinion, in, in 2020? I I don't want to make too much out of the small sample. He played 38 games. He had 132 plate appearances, but he also posted a 29 WRC plus and he looked pretty lost at the plate. So what is the organization's plan for him this year? And what do you see him trying to do to sort of course correct how his rookie debut went? I think Joe Madden put it pretty plainly back in December. He just wasn't ready. It seemed like situationally, like if things were a couple things went different, I think there's a good chance Joe Adele wouldn't have played at all at big league level. Uh, last season, uh, Justin Upton got to a really bad start at the plate. Uh, the Angels were really sliding to start the season, and they sort of felt like they needed something as something as like a jump start. And I think that I think they thought that Joe Adele could be that. Uh, he wasn't, and I think you saw some of the things that we just needed to see more time out of in the minor leagues. I think that's what we might see in 2021. You said no small sample in 2020, but I think the small sample he had in AAA in 2019, uh, I think just sort of indicated that he maybe wasn't even ready for that level yet, or he was still adjusting to that level. I think more time in AAA, getting a chance to continue to work on things with the swing. I know this spring he's talking about maybe flattening his approach. I know he wasn't intentionally trying to loft the ball or anything like that. He wasn't trying to have a, a that sort of a swing path, but it seemed like that was something that he was doing perhaps unintentionally, uh, stuff that he's trying to work on, maybe try to focus more on hitting the ball to center, right center, where a lot of his power is anyways, and using that uh, to get to more pitches and cut down on some of the strikeouts. And I think the biggest thing for me that were that sort of learning curve showed itself was in the outfield. Uh, I know he came up as a center fielder and basically was there until Mike Trout signed his contract extension and the Angels decided to see what he would look like in a corner. And he still is learning in that position. I think you saw that last year a lot. I know there's the big play in Texas that everyone's going to remember. Uh, but there's just like other little things where he, you could sort of see the gears turning a little bit. And I think that's stuff that you're going to continue to see him work on. I know what he was saying is something that he was struggling with last year is that he felt like he was just trying to fit in, in a sense, at the big league level. Like he wasn't necessarily fully ready. And I don't, I don't want to say he wasn't fully ready, but he didn't feel like he was fully himself a lot last year in terms of personality, in terms of getting no teammates, in terms of feeling good when he's playing. I think that's something that he sort of came into this spring feeling a lot more sure about himself, feeling a lot more sure about who he is as a person and about the stuff that he needs to work on this winter and this spring. And I think over the course of the summer when he probably starts the season down in the minor league. So I wouldn't be surprised if he ends the season as the Angels' everyday right fielder, uh, but at least trading for Dexter Fowler gives the Angels someone who you can put in right field to start the season and you don't really feel like you have to rush Adele up like they did last year. 
I don't know if I have a question here exactly, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about David Fletcher, who I think is probably one of the most underrated players in baseball. And if you agree with that, or or for people who haven't really had a chance to watch him day in and day out or appreciate him, I wonder if you could explain what he does well. I, I guess that the Angels might not be using his positional versatility quite as much this year as they have in the past, but He's capable of playing all those positions. He makes so much contact. He's just a, a really solid player who obviously goes under the radar compared to, you know, Andrelton Simmons, who was there along with him, or Mike Trout, of course, or Anthony Rendon, et cetera. But he's just a really solid player. I appreciate him. Yeah, he's a very, very solid player. He's been very productive. Uh, he's been able to play a lot. And I think, I know, obviously, this is maybe picking at small samples and guys who performed and didn't perform, but... I mean, since he debuted in 2018, I think I was looking at the baseball reference more leaderboard since then. Like he has more than Jose Altuve, more than Marcelo Zuna, more than Bryce Harper. I mean, those are some big yeah. names. Those are former top prospects, former MVPs. And he's been just a consistent player. And I think aesthetically speaking, he's a lot different than the type of players you see nowadays. I mean, he th- his throwing motion's a little bit unorthodox. He plays all these different positions, but he's not necessarily the biggest or the fastest. Uh, he doesn't hit for much or any power, really, but he has a, like a Williams Estadio style of where like, he's going up there hacking and he's going to make contact with everything. I think he's led the league or been at the top of the league in contact rate the last couple of years. And uh, you always know that the ball is probably going to wind up being in play when he's playing. And that that's something that just as a baseball observer, something that is very aesthetically pleasing to me. And he's been a very productive player. And I like you mentioned, he's going to be probably the everyday second baseman at this point. Are the Angels probably going to look long-term at shortstop and free agency? I wouldn't be surprised. But if they don't wind up adding any of those big names, I wouldn't be surprised either if the Angels just wind up slotting him over to shortstop because they feel that good about him defensively. You're just pandering to me and to this podcast audience with that Williams <laughs> counter. Exactly. <laughs> I like it. I can't believe that we've gotten 36 minutes into this and we haven't yet asked you about Mike Trout. So I guess that I will be the one to do that. Um, He had what I guess would be considered a down year for him, which is just another reminder that he's remarkable. I don't think we have to worry too much about how he's going to perform in a normal season. But one thing I do want to ask you about is his defense, which, again, I don't want to make too much out of a 53-game sample, but he's he's sort of been, if we want to use so dramatic a term, on the decline when it comes to his fielding for a little while now that the metrics have have started to sort of sour on that. And he's sort of famous for going into the offseason with with one thing, he's going to improve, and then he's fantastic at it. Uh, but the defense seems to to just be a, a factor of age. Has he talked about that at all? Does he acknowledge this part of his mortality, or is he just Mike Trout? Yeah, I mean, I think he, uh, last year, during the middle of the season, I think he pointed out that he saw a Mike Petriello tweet about uh, some of his jumps and how they were down uh, that year and how they haven't been great. They've been some of the wor- they have been some of the worst in baseball to that point. And that was something he noticed. And, like, that, I think that's something that he went into this offseason trying to work on. I know that his defense is something that's important to him. Uh, and those jumps is probably where a lot of it centers on. Like his jumps have really been slipping a little bit. He said last year he just got out of his routine in a sense. Some of the COVID protocols, some of the rules, he didn't spend as much time at the ballpark as usual. And that was just something that he felt like slipped. And I know he said it was a little bit interesting playing in empty ballparks. Like the ball sound coming off the bat was a little bit different. There's a lot of different things that he just felt like he had to adjust to and he didn't quite adjust well enough to. 
Uh, and that's something that he has made a focal point of trying to make as part of his work this winter, part of his work so far in spring training. He wants to wind up being in center field. And I know that the Angels have replacements possibly defensively in center field long term in place. I know Adele has played center. And then they have two guys probably in the organization, their farm system right now, who defensively probably can man center field already in the big league level in Jordan Adams and Brandon Marsh. Right. Well, I, I guess the only other question that I have about them, and I don't want to give short shrift to some of their other additions. You know, they they famously traded for not one, but two Iglesias's this offseason. They added Kurt Suzuki in a backup role. But I'm curious how this franchise views itself within its division. You know, we, I think every year, hope that they're going to play baseball in October if for no other reason than we want to see Trout and Rendon and these guys on the biggest stage. But where do they see themselves in terms of the the likelihood that they can either snag the West or be in play for a wild card spot this year. I think the biggest thing that we've seen since, especially since Artie Moreno has owned the team, and then we saw like Billy Epler, the old GM, sort of verbalizing is basically trying to be competitive, at, but knowing like being in that competitive range and hoping that enough things go right where you can sort of sneak into that wild card spot or sneak into a division where you can have that 90th percentile performance season. Uh, the Angels haven't had that, obviously. Uh, they have not been above 500 since 2015. Uh, but they've been close a lot. They've been a five, like essentially a 500 team a couple of those seasons. Uh, I think that's something the Angels are sort of continuing to push forward with. I think with how you saw the, them approach this winter, they basically spent everything on just trying to patch up the holes that they had. I'm curious to see. I, I mean, obviously this season, I think, they're trying to compete and they're trying to be in the mix. I don't know if they're necessarily pushing all the chips in like the Padres are or anything like that, but they're trying to be competitive. I'm really curious to see what next winter looks like because Albert Pujols' contract comes off the books. Four members of their current starting rotation are going to be free agents. Uh, I think the only four guaranteed contracts the Angels have right now are going to be Trout, Rendon, Justin Upton, and now Shohei Otani after he signed that two-year ARB extension. Uh, so they're going to have some money to play with. Artie Moreno has shown he's willing to spend uh, close to the luxury tax. They could probably come in, go in and add another star-level bat, another star-level player. They could be in the mix maybe for some of those top starters on the market. I think that the Angels are going to try to contend this year. They're going to try to be in the mix, especially with Houston and uh, Oakland probably each taking a step back. But I think next year is going to be that year where I think they push a few more of those chips in. So last thing before we get to the prediction, you alluded earlier to the treatment of scouts and other employees last year, and we're about to do the Royals preview. The Royals have sort of established a reputation for treating their people particularly well during difficult circumstances. The Angels did not. And we actually got an email late last year from someone who worked for the Angels who said that they couldn't think of a a team being able to treat their employees worse than the way that the Angels had treated treated them at a time when they needed the team's help the most. And I know Albert Pujols donated some money to cover the salaries of the employees at the Academy in the Dominican Republic. And there were some reports about minor leaguers not getting paid and really aggressive furloughs. So is that an ongoing issue? Are a lot of people laid off or furloughed or is there lingering bitterness about that? Yeah, my understanding is that there still are some scouts and people furloughed. I could be wrong. Like They could have corrected that recently. Uh, but like I know a lot of the focus as far as like spending on uh, front office standpoint have been focused on bringing in some of the new hires uh, under Perry Manassian and bringing, filling out that front office. But I know that for now, at least, 
they're still operating and trying to figure out sort of how to make the most of the scouting staff that they do currently have in place. And I, we'll see how long, how much those ramifications are. I know last year, the, some of the furloughs that they made, especially from the amateur scouting standpoint, were right before the draft. Uh, and I don't know how much that effect wound up actually affecting their draft last year, especially with it only being five rounds. But we'll see what the ramifications wind up being next year going forward and what, from a pro scouting standpoint, uh, that winds up doing from the roster acquisition. I, this may be maybe just trying to read between the lines, but I know that a lot of the people at the Angels did acquire this winter are people that Joe Madden or Perry Manassian have a history with. And I wonder, maybe that p- plays a role. Maybe that familiarity just was something they were looking at in general anyways, but it, it's something that definitely raised my eyebrow a little bit. All right, so we have come to the prediction. How many wins do you think the Angels will have in 2021? Uh, that's tricky because I know I've tried to be around this range in the past and they've still fallen short of that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm still going to try to, I think the floor of this team is a lot higher than it has been in the last couple of years. Even though the ceiling is still probably where it had been. Uh, in that case, I'll probably say about 83 wins, 84 wins, and they'll be in that mix for the second wild card. As they always are. Well, we will see if this will be the year. I guess I shouldn't say they always are. Some some years they're not even in the mix. But yeah. <laughs> I would would hope that uh, next year at this time, Mike Trapp will not have to be answering questions yet again about never making the playoffs because it seems like he's sort of tired of doing that every spring. I'm tired of asking him. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope his teammates give him a playoff appearance as a belated 30th birthday present. Big 3-0 coming up in August. So you can read Fabian at The Athletic. You can find him on Twitter at Fabian R. Diab. We always enjoy his work. Please keep tweeting about Shohei Otani doing well and being healthy all year long. Even if it's not true, it will make me feel better. Thank you for coming on, as always. Will do, and thanks for having me. Okay, we'll take one more quick break, and we'll be back with Lynn Worthy of the Kansas City Star to talk about the Royals. Right, we are back and we're ready to talk Royals with Lynn Worthy, who covers the team for the Kansas City Star. Hello, Lynn. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Happy to. So let's start with something newsy, not the Gerard Dyson reunion, which just broke before we recorded, but maybe we'll get to that in a bit. Wanted to start with not the Dyson deal news, but the Hunter Dozier deal news. So the Royals just signed Dozier to a four-year extension and I was wondering whether they are happy with who Hunter Dozier has been, whether they think there's more in there, and whether this is possibly a prelude to any other extensions that could be coming soon. Yeah, I, I do believe they were they're happy with who he's been, particularly the two, the 2019 season. I believe is what they mm-hmm. they think is you know more the player that he can be that he will be going forward. Last year was sort of a lost year, just in terms of. He got COVID just before the season started, 
And then I think he ended up playing 44 games, I want to say it is, 43, 44, 43. And um, really, for part of that, wasn't um, up to, you know, he had some of the, the lingering effects of COVID, wasn't, didn't have his win back, wasn't quite up to um, full speed and everything. Um, so last year was really a lost year. But that 2019 season where, you know, he had career year, 26 home runs, hit about 270, I believe. I'm not looking at right at the numbers, but that's the year that they sort of point to and say, okay, that's what he can be. That's what they feel like he's going to be going forward. Also, just the, the also the, the versatility as far as defensively. He's a guy who started at third base, started in the outfield, started left and right field at times, started at first base, and it seems like he may you know, continue to move around depending on as they go forward in different players become available or different guys come up from uh, the farm system. It was an interesting move. And I, I guess before we start on any of the other moves that they've made this offseason, I want to talk about where they see themselves in both in their sort of competitive window and then within the division more broadly, because on the one hand, they do have some exciting young prospects and some of their top prospects have joined the major league club and they do have, you know, the beginnings of a nucleus, but they also made some signings this offseason that you would generally see a club do as sort of the finishing touches on a contending team. And so they they seem to be in an odd spot. They're certainly more watchable and dynamic, and I think that they have the makings of a good team in a couple of years. But where do they see themselves in terms of how close to being a, a competitive ball club they are? Well, they they have every given every indication that they plan to – you know, be um, competitive this season. I mean, in terms of, I mean, now it depends on exactly where you're going to define the competitive, but all indications are that they, you know, that with the moves they made in the offseason, going out and getting Carlos Santana, Mike Miner, Michael A. Taylor, uh, the trade for Andrew Benintendi, they are not sort of kicking the can down the road anymore as far as, okay, once we get till, you know, 2022, 2023, they're not really saying that. They're, they're at least, you know, giving lip service to, Right now is the time that they plan to be competitive. Now, going forward, as they you know develop some more of their pitching, maybe get some more prospects up, they probably project to be better in the years coming forward. But they're talking about being competitive right now. And Mike Matheny, their manager, I mean, as far as he's concerned, they were trying to be competitive last year. But, I mean, I think um, at least on paper, they appear to be more likely to be competitive this year i don't think it's realistic to project them to be winning the division this year but maybe close the gap maybe be able to jump over a team like cleveland depending on how cleveland goes this year and then be in that mix for that third team that division maybe a wild card something like that i think is what realistically they'd be looking at for this season yeah it's funny i mean coming off of the pennant winning teams world series winning team the Royals maybe tried too long to keep competing. You could argue, uh, you know, I mean, I think they, they're they kind of in this down cycle now, not because they set out to be bad as, as some teams do to try to rebuild. If anything, they thought they could contend with that core longer than they really could. And, and they kept trying to do it and to add to it. And it didn't really work past a certain point. But, you know, some other team in that situation might have done more of an intentional teardown tanking type thing. And the Royals didn't do that. And they are not doing that now, you know, even if even though they are not really a, a favorite right now and don't seem to be constructed to be a contender unless everything went right for them and wrong for their competitors. They're still really investing in the team. They're bringing in veterans, you know, just things that. Some other teams have not done and, and that a lot of fans lament. 
that they won't do. So it, it seems like they're trying to put recognizable, entertaining players on the field, even when they are not actually a favorite in the division. And I wonder if that is just sort of a, a philosophical thing for them, that they just don't believe in intentionally being bad, even if it's to be better in the long run. You know, Do they just feel like we have to put a good product on the field or how can we ask our fans to support it? Yeah, it's philosophical. I mean, if you talk to, you know, front office like Dayton Moore, general manager, he would go back as far as, um, you know, even last year, years before that, and say that they were always trying to be competitive. And obviously this year, it you know, obviously it has a little more heft to it when you go out and you make some of the signings, especially in the offseason where there were, seemed like signings were few and far between as far as free agents. But yes, philosophically, you know, they, they, they want to try and put the, the best team together they can without necessarily locking themselves into, you know, deals that are going to hamstring them for the future because they're a small market team. You know, the financial flexibility is, you know, when you sign a big contract, it takes a little while for that to, uh, those for you to get out from under that and to be able to make uh, some some moves or to have some roster flexibility. I mean, they're just now to the point where, you know, um, Alex Gordon's big money came off before last season. Ian Kennedy's big contract comes off going into this season. Now they just have uh, Danny Duffy is going to be the highest paid player this season. And uh, Salvador Perez can be a free agent at the end of this year. He's a guy that they, I believe, will look to extend sooner than later. But yeah, they they philosophically want to try and put a team that's going to be competitive um, every year. It's just, you know, financially, if they have a long-term deal there that sort of eats up a big chunk of the payroll, then they have to sort of work around that because they don't have, you know, they can't sign five, six guys to big deals like that. It's just not going to financially work for them. A couple of the guys who they did bring in this offseason really reworked Kansas City's outfield. So they signed Michael A. Taylor to a one-year deal, and they traded for Andrew Benintendi. What are the expectations for those guys going into the 2021 season? I guess let's start with Benintendi because he will theoretically be with the organization much longer than than Taylor will be. Yeah, Benintendi, you know, they've got him this year and next year at least. As far as his arbitration eligible years, he's under team control. They're looking at him as the guy that we saw back in, you know, 2017, 2018, as opposed to 2019 and 2020. So um, 2020, obviously, I think he only played 14 games, um, was hurt. uh, And that was, again, a lost year for another guy that they're counting on this year, which is in some ways, a little bit of a trend for this year's team, where the, you know, whether that's you know Hunter Dozier, Carlos Santana, Benintendi, and Benintendi had said even when we had the first call with him after the trade, that um, he really fell into the um, you know the launch angle and trying to hit for power and bulked up and did all those things that it seemed to have an adverse effect on his production in 2019. And you saw the strikeouts go up a little bit. Even the power numbers dipped a little bit as far as home runs were down a little bit in that 2019 season from um, the previous when he came up in 2017 and 2018. And so he says he's back to, you know, he's gotten lighter again. He's trying to get that same swing back and that swing path back. He wants to hit doubles, triples, use his speed in Kauffman Stadium. That's the way he's going to have to go at Kauffman Stadium. It's it's not a big home run hitter's ballpark. And so they're looking for him to be that guy, the 2017-2018 Andrew Benintendi, the guy who's going to hit, you know, line drives, use the whole field, the high on base, 
particularly the on-base, was something they really targeted this offseason between him and Santana. And so that's what they're looking for from him. And then also a defensive left fielder. I mean, you just obviously retired Alex Gordon, who, you know, tied the franchise record for gold gloves he'd won in left field. And so now you bring in Benintendi, who I believe, um, and I'm pretty sure this was a, a fan graphs number that I looked up at the time, was during his the time period that he came up, I believe he was second in defensive runs saved to Gordon in that period that he was, uh, for left fielders, in that period that he was um, with Boston or since he came up with Boston. To talk about one other outfielder, Whit Merrifield, I've seen some people suggest that maybe the, the Royals should have traded him, that they, they missed the time to you know get prospects back for Merrifield and really kickstart their run back to contention. And you know he's been a very valuable contributor for them. They seem quite happy to have him. I mean, is there any sense that they missed the time to convert him into the, the next generation of Royal stars or are they very happy to have him provide some continuity and be a mentor type while continuing to play pretty well? I think they're happy to have him. I mean, I think it would have had to have been a um, a deal that just sort of bowled them over, I think, to, um, to, to pry him loose. I think because he's sort of, um, at least right now, behind maybe Salvador Perez, one of the, the faces of the, the franchise right now, um, homegrown guy, a guy who's sort of represents the style of play that they want between the versatility and the being able to use his speed. You know, he's led the American League and led the majors in stolen bases, led the, the majors in hits, played multiple positions. And so I think that, and he's sort of, um, just in terms of a clubhouse, he's grown into a sort of a clubhouse leader, you know, was really close with Alex Gordon and has sort of been somewhat mentored by Gordon as far as, you know, being that outspoken, uh, being that uh, outspoken, more outspoken than Gordon actually, but being that team leader and clubhouse leader. So um, I think they're happy to have him. And also he, you know, when he signed his extension prior to 2019, it, it was a good contract for them in terms of, you know, it, it gave him some long-term stability, but he wasn't making, you know, huge numbers. And even, you know, they structured it so that they could build in years where they could pay some guys more. I believe this is one of those years where his number goes down. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, not looking at the numbers, but I think what he's making sort of gives you some leeway to, you know, be able to pay some of these other guys like Santana and minor or or maybe it's more so next year it goes down a little bit when their numbers go up it may be that more so but because they're making more in their second year of their deals than they were in the first year well two guys who are still chugging along at the league minimum and will be i think from kansas city's perspective hopefully impact pitchers going forward are brady singer and chris bubich who graduated from prospect status last year and had fine but not um, sort of exemplary rookie seasons. What is the club expecting from them in terms of a step forward in 2021? Well, that that's going to be the most interesting thing, I think, this season is just to see how the pitching plays out. Because those two are, you know, I mean, you project them to be part of the starting rotation this season. But they're also two guys who uh, singer through 64 and a third or two thirds, somewhere in the neighborhood uh, innings last year, which 50 innings. Yep. And so to make the big jump this season, you know, to making that that every fifth day and the innings workload that would, you know, typically pile up from that um, is going to be interesting. They've talked about and they haven't really, you know, settled on anything, but they've talked about 
early in the season when you don't need as many starters, whether or not guys get skipped, um, potentially using a six-man. So it will be interesting to see how exactly they navigate that, but those two are definitely in the plans. Those are two guys that they believe are starters for the long term, um, guys who, you know, they want to see more consistency out of Bubich. Specifically, Bubich, it was going to be his his command. Mike Matheny's a big fan of his, but he also continues to say we haven't seen the best of him yet because he hasn't really commanded the ball the way he had in the minors. And last year, you know, he had, I think it was only two starts where he made it through uh, six complete innings. And a lot of that was because the command issues led to high pitch counts, led to, you know, him not going deep into games. Singer had, you know, he had some real flashes of brilliance. I mean, there was the, took a no-hitter into the eighth inning in Cleveland last year. He's really improved sort of his location. Um, one of the things he talked a lot about last year was the quality of his misses improved as he adjusted to the big league game, and as he, you know, got adjusted to facing those caliber hitters and had to pay some prices early on some missed locations that improved and so now it's going to be sort of you know adding a third pitch for him the the change up has been a topic of conversation since his first year in the minors and then also just adjusting to you know uh, opponents who have a book on him now at the top of the rotation, you've got Danny Duffy and Brad Keller, and I guess Duffy fits into that Merrifield mold of someone who could have been traded at a certain point and, and was rumored to be a, a trade target, but wasn't moved, and they seem to like having him around. He has not been great lately. He's not been his best self, but is there hope for a bounce back there? And and then I guess with Keller, who's been really impressive, you know, I kind of wonder whether he's exceeded expectations or whether they foresaw how effective he's been, because he's not someone who was like a, a top 100 prospect type, and yet he's been really good despite not seeming to have strikeout stuff. It's just low BABIP and ground balls, and it's worked for him thus far. Yeah, with Keller, they, I mean, and they haven't really been shy about saying that they sort of view him as a potential ace for the pitching staff that they have, a workhorse type. I mean, physically, he he looks like that. And I know they they liked him, you know, for a while. They Their scouts liked him. So um, I don't know that they projected specifically, you know, what sort of uh, success he might have early, but they definitely thought he was a starter type, a workhorse type. They liked what they saw with him when he was in the minors. Their their scouts have been had eyes on him for a while. The again, he he plays into the the, you know, the interesting sort of how the pitching plays out because for the success that he's had and for the fact that, you know, he's viewed as their their future ace. He hasn't pitched that much, really. You know, he was out of the bullpen that year for part of that year that he was a Rule 5 pick. He's had one full season as a starter, and they shut him down at the end of 2019. And then 2020, obviously, was a truncated season, and he got a late start to that because uh, he had gotten COVID. So definitely plays. He looks the part, like I say, and they think he's a, a front-of-the-rotation horse um, that just hasn't, you know, had a chance to play out yet. And Duffy... You know, they, they want him to sort of be a leader of this uh, pitching staff in terms of his, you know, veteran presence, be a guy who they can count on to log innings, especially this year where, you know, innings will be at such a premium. Um, he's one of the few guys, along with Mike Miner, who have, you know, had multiple seasons as a starter under their belt and have logged, you know, the heavy workload. 
multiple times. I'm not sure that they ever really came close to anything with him as far as a trade. And I, I think the idea was probably, uh, or at least it was somewhat in mind that, you know, as he got closer to the end of that deal, the contract that he has, that it would probably be more tradable late in that deal. I'm not sure that that's, you know, if they would look at that this year because they're going to need those innings. But I think that was, you know, and he, he, he obviously, I think he had that comment. He was called, you know, a while back as Barry Mere Royal. So obviously he's, um, you know, a homegrown guy, another guy that they, type of guy that they keep in house was part of that championship team, one of the last remaining links to the World Series. So. And as you mentioned, one of the other guys who's going to help to sort of stabilize that rotation and, and bring some innings is Mike Miner. Walk us through sort of what the rationale was, not only for the team and bringing him in, because obviously every team can use innings and good innings at that, and he's he certainly had some of those, but also what it was like for him to, to make the return. Yeah, the fact that he had been there before, and I think at the time that, you know, they announced that deal, he actually used the phrase that... He felt like he sort of owed something to the Royals because when he was there before, they paid them for a year that he was just rehabbing. Physically, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't pitch for them. So he really got paid, you know, two years to be able to play one for them. And obviously after that went on, he was working on the bullpen then, but went on to start again and establish, you know, had a, a an all-star year as a starter, had uh, 200 innings as a starter. And so bringing him back is... You know, and they've obviously, you know, there's been several, <laughs> even some recent uh, examples of guys that they've brought back that they've had experience with before. But I think the innings was a big thing, a front of the rotation guy, a veteran guy, where you have all these young guys that you're still unproven. You know, a lot of these guys, even go to the guys we mentioned before, Singer and Bubich, you know, they've had some big league experience. They've had the taste, but they haven't had full seasons. They haven't had... You know the workload they have uh, haven't had the ups and downs that you assume are going to come, and then you have prospects waiting the wings that you're again are all unproven. So to have some stability as far in terms of innings, in terms of production, you can sort of reasonably project what you're going to get. I think that was a big, big thing for them to be able to get him. We haven't talked about Alberto Mondesi, who is probably the most tantalizing talent on this team, and. He's a player who's just so good on defense and on the bases that he doesn't have to hit to be productive, but there is a hope that he would hit and just be a star. It wouldn't take much to vault him into that territory, and yet he's had such issues with strikeout-to-walk ratio that he hasn't seemed to correct. So what's the hope on what his realistic floor and, and ceiling are at this point? Well, they, they continue to believe that he's, you know, he's a star in the waiting. He, um, part of the the issues, obviously, as you mentioned, the, the, the strikeout, the free swinging nature. I think they also want to believe that had he been healthy for longer stretches than he's been, that maybe with more time in the majors, some of that would have worked itself out or he would have you know, been able to, I'm not saying make huge strides, but become a little bit better with plate discipline. But, you know, that inconsistency with the playing time, I mean, he had so many seasons where he just couldn't stay healthy, played a factor into that as well. So uh, last year with the shortened season, plays the entire season, but, you know, the first part of it, he just uh, seemed sort of lost at the plate. And then in last season, of course, you had the second half of the season, the last 29 games, he showed everything that they think he can be between the power, the ability to 
run the extra bases throughout the season really he was he was very good defensively or at least he played well defensively despite the the struggles offensively so they continue to believe that you know at his best he's a almost a, a Lindor type player but they're just still waiting for him to get to that level and then try and maintain that level and stay healthy but they're they're very much committed to, to modesty. So I wanted to ask a question about Dayton Moore and Mike Matheny, who earlier in their career were sort of sabermetric punching bags. You know, they they looked at things in a certain way or said things in a certain way, and they were frequent targets of uh, people who looked at things in the more analytical numbers-oriented sense. And look, they both had plenty of success and won pennants in one World Series, and they're still standing. I'm curious whether you've gotten a sense of whether they have evolved over the course of their career, whether their thinking has changed. I know you didn't cover them earlier on, but maybe you've been able to glean something about that just from the way they've talked or what you've observed, because Moore is just an institution at this point. I guess you know only maybe Kenny Williams and Brian Cashman and Billy Bean really go back longer when it comes to GM. So both of those guys have uh, had a place in the game for a long time now, and I wonder whether they have evolved in certain ways as the game has evolved. Well, with Dayton, you know, the conversations I've had playing in the last couple of years with him, and when I get into sort of those bigger picture or philosophical questions about scouting analytics, he always points out, and I know he's been sort of cast as the old school guy, and he's definitely very much on the scouting side because that's, you know, how he grew up in the game. But he, like I say, in that conversation, he always points to the need for balance, like that it's not that it's a one versus the other. I think there was one time, it might have been the general manager's meetings, not this past year, but the year before, where um, when I tried the, the way I tried to frame it was scouting versus analytics. He just, he said flat out, that's a tired way of thinking that it's one versus the other. That's not the way he views it, or at least not the way he wanted to be presented as viewing it. It was more balancing both out. And so, um, you know, they definitely, analytics plays a part in everything they do as the sports science and everything else. You know, they've, their analytics department weighs in on free agent additions, acquisitions. They, they weigh in on draft, they weigh in on scouting. They're, they're involved with everything. But because his background is in scouting and he has a lot of people in the front office who have similar backgrounds. I think that's why he's cast that way. But I think, and he definitely does, I think they do lean that way, but I don't think they're, they're not closed mind to analytics. I mean, I don't think they would really survive doing it that way. Um, So I would say he's probably more open than gets characterized when it comes Mm -hmm. to the numbers, but but still leans on the scouting side because that's, you know, um, his background in the game. Right. And with Matheny, I I wonder, because, you know, one of the raps on him in St. Louis was that he was not great at working young players into the team and trusting them. And that's going to be something that he'll be called on to do here. Yeah. And I, you know, and I haven't seen that. I mean, at least not play out in the time and he's only had a short time with the Royals. But I mean, he's definitely a fan of a lot of their young players. I mean, and even, you know, like the things that we heard before he came was, you know, the young players are going to have trouble or he's going to have 
you know, not going to want to embrace a lot of the young players. He's, you know, he was old school. They thought with some of his approach to, to you know, managing and, and dealing with players. The bullpen maybe was more of an old school thing. And he's been the opposite of that with the bullpen. I mean, he's, his bullpen usage in last year was a shortened year, but that was one of the ones that jumped out of this right away was that the traditional roles, he's not, he's not really much on the traditional roles. I mean, when Rosenthal was still with them, he did sort of settle in to being more of the closer type. But he talked back in spring training last year about matching guys up with certain parts of the lineup, particular matches, matchups and high leverage innings. And that's how you use the bullpen as opposed to this is got guys going to be seventh, eighth, ninth inning. And he's had those conversations with guys that they've acquired this year. I mean, Wade Davis comes back and obviously has some gravitas behind his you know, resume. And before he signed, they had the conversation about, you know, being used in high leverage and matchup oriented as opposed to just having a particular role. And that's what Davis had said himself about that they had that conversation before he signed. Lineup construction, I remember having the conversation with him last year because they were using Solaire in the two hole. And that was because he was, he pointed to the numbers that say, you know, you want to have a guy like that, get more chances at the plate. Even recently, I think it was as recently as might have been today, actually, we were, you know, just sort of talking a little bit about the lineup they'll have this year. And, um, you know, like Mondesi was a guy that um, he hasn't played yet this spring. He's got to deal with a foot thing. But where they put him in the lineup, you know, he talked again about, you know, um, where you put him because you want to get certain guys more at bats talked about Santana, maybe even being a two hole hitter at some point, potentially because of the on base. And because again, you want a guy like that to get more plate appearances. So a lot of that stuff, at least in the short sample that we have with Matheny hasn't really played out. And with the young players, I mean, guys like uh, Nicky Lopez, who still hasn't really as quite established himself offensively, but has been a really good defensive player was a gold glove finalist last year they continue to give him opportunities to play on a regular basis and trying to think of who this last year has been really really young player who's played it's been more pitchers than position players that have been getting regular time but yeah i haven't quite seen that that shy away from the young players at least not in the time that we've seen I think one of the things that Kansas City did last year that people around the game found really impressive was sort of bucking the trend of leaving folks in the organization to fend for themselves, right? They agreed to pay their minor leaguers through what would have been the conclusion of the minor league season. They took pay cuts at the senior executive level rather than lay folks off. And I'm curious sort of where that where that philosophy emanated from and what the response internally has been to it, because we've heard a lot of horror stories about how teams have treated their people over the last year. And I think that Kansas City was a really lovely and notable exception to that. Yeah, I think that's a combination of, you know, I mean, I think Dayton Moore is obviously the because of his background, because of people who who know him, there's a lot of credit given to Dayton, and rightfully, but I think also, you know, the owner, uh, John Sherman, the CEO and chairman, John Sh- Sherman, who took over <laughs> last, you know, the the, the winter before yeah. the pandemic, so hasn't had a fan in the stands yet. <laughs> Hell of a year to be a new owner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and but he, the two of them, I'd say, you know, uh, I think you give Sherman as much credit, if not more than than Dayton, because I think Dayton 
obviously that philosophy, you know, jives with what, you know, everybody knows of Dayton and what I've seen of him and people who I've know, known who've known him, you know, even before I started covering the team. But I think it doesn't, it doesn't get that far without Sherman. That's for sure, especially in a year like they had. So I know that it, it, I mean, obviously, it's people like working for them, whether it's scouting side, coaches, players obviously like the fact that they at least seem to be a team that cares about players from, you know, the guys who are at the bottom of the minor league roster to all the way up. Um, they care about their players. Scouts, same thing. But I think also the way that it was, uh, the, the fact that they got out front and made sure to let people know what they were doing helped them. Like, I know for a fact it helped them when it came time for, you know, this, this year was a weird setup with undrafted free agents. And I know that that was, you know, mentioned to some of the guys as a sort of part of their recruiting pitch. It's like, hey, sure. we take care of our pitchers, I mean, our players, um, you know, we pay our minor leaguers, that sort of thing. And, but not even just this year. I mean, one of their, one of the top targets, Kale Emhoff, was a guy who, his college coach at Arkansas Little Rock had been a minor leaguer in the Royal system when Dayton and J.J. Piccolo were early in their stages. And the way they handled him back then was something that, not that they could have known, but contributed to, to the way Kale viewed that organization. So, yeah, I think it's a philosophical thing that goes all the way to the top and goes all the way down. But uh, I think it's helped them. But I, it, obviously it's not, you know, it's not like people are turning down twice as much money to come sign because of that. But I think it, it, it factors in. It's just sort of hard to quantify exactly how it does. Yeah. Jared Diamond wrote an article about the Royals last summer, I remember, for the Wall Street Journal that was called Baseball's Newest Market Inefficiency, Treating People Like People, which is <laughs> uh, not the only reason to treat people well because you might get something out of it. But I guess it's a nice byproduct if you're doing it for other reasons. So at the end of these segments, we always ask our guest for a win total prediction. So I'm going to do that and then kind of a, a two-part prediction, I guess, if you can give us a win total and also tell us whether you would expect the Royals to be busy at the deadline, you know, whether some of the veterans that they have brought on, they might be looking at as potential trade chips. Let's see, win total. I haven't really projected a win total or like predicted the win total this year. I know the... The Pakoda was done before Benintendi, and I think that had him at around 71 wins, if I remember right. And I'm still not sure. I think the 71, if I remember, was is pretty close to if you extended their win percentage from last year over 162, it was pretty close to what that would have been. Mm. I feel like they're maybe better than that at least the lineup is but uh, there's a lot of questions with the pitching just because you have so many young guys and guys who haven't pitched uh, i mean everybody can say it too though with the coming off the pandemic season so the workloads and the innings and everything is going to be a big factor mm-hmm. so i guess i'm being optimistic and it's spring training so of course the optimism <laughs> reigns supreme you could go to yeah i don't know if i'm ready to go over go to 500 yet so i guess maybe i'll go 75 75. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if they're on pace for 75 or so at the deadline, and it looks like they're probably not in the playoff hunt, would you expect them to be open to moving the, you know, Santanas or Miners or others uh, of that ilk if there's interest, if they're playing well? The only issue with that is I'm just not sure, especially for the pitching side, if they were to move somebody like that, if they'd be willing to 
log the re the rest of the way, log, log the innings and the, the young guys the rest of the way. I'm not sure how that's going to play out. Santana, I mean, I don't expect that there'll be big players at the deadline just as we sit here now. I mean, I think they're, they're going to look to see if there's something they can add, maybe even earlier than that, if they feel like they need they have a need that, that they, they want to try and fill to help them be competitive before you get to the trade deadline. I mean, if by the time they get into like, you know, May, they feel like there's some areas that they might be able to address. I wouldn't be surprised if they did something smaller at that point, but I don't expect by the time you get to July for them necessarily to be big players. But again, I think a lot of that just depends on how things play out with the pitching because it's just so unpredictable and uncertain and on just a unique situation with that coming off of the pandemic and with them relying on so many young guys, um, or at least their depth relies on so many young guys, more or less. Well, whatever happens, Drott Dyson and Wade Davis are back, so you can squint and pretend it's 2015 again. <laughs> Maybe that'll <laughs> make you happy. <laughs> so you can find Lynn on Twitter at LWorthySports. You can find him covering the Royals for the Kansas City Star. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. AJ Lionberger, Tim Boyd, Nick E.D., Jabalong, and 730DC. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. Harness your hopes on just one person Because you know a harness was only made for one Don't telegraph your passes You'll end up with molasses and car